Welcome to Ideas for Practice, a podcast of the Region 5 Public Health Training Center. As one of 10 public health training centers across the country, the RVPHTC seeks to strengthen the skills of the current and future public health workforce in order to improve population health outcomes. We hope this podcast will share insights and spark ideas among those working in public health practice. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. Today, we'll be talking about water, environmental health, and equity. I'm your host, Isabel Burke. In this episode, we'll be gaining insight into the public health issues related to water pollution and water access and how this is intimately linked to structural racism and health inequities. Our guest today is Emily Kudo, a designer, educator, researcher, and activist with We the People of Detroit. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. I'm so excited to talk with you today and learn more about your experiences. Thanks for having me. So um, just to start off, do you mind uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and about your work? Yeah, um, so I am a researcher and a designer. I'm trained in architecture, um, and I'm also a member of We the People of Detroit. Um, We the People of Detroit is an activist organization um, that was founded by five Black women um, in, I believe, 2008. Um, Deborah Taylor, Cecily McClellan, Chris Griffith, Aurora Harris, and um, the president, Monica Lewis-Patrick. And I met... Monica, um, when I was part of an organization called Detroiters Resisting Emergency Management um, in 2014, um, and at those meetings we were talking about, you know, how to how to respond to the mass water shutoff crisis in Detroit, um, and we, the people of Detroit, really took an early leadership role in the water shutoff crisis. Um, both in advocating for water affordability and really becoming a kind of leading voice in advocacy, um, but also in creating um, an emergency response plan. Um, We the people of Detroit created water stations um, all over the city where um, people could get access to water if their water had been shut off. Um, They also created a hotline, a water rights hotline where people could call if they were shut off or if they were at risk of being shut off. Um, and uh, We the People of Detroit would help them navigate all of these kind of complex and inadequate assistance programs that exist um, within the water department. Um, and, and so when, when I met Monica, they were in the middle of organizing these massive you know, citywide canvassing efforts and setting up these water stations. Um, and Monica was looking for um, someone who could work with them to map where water shutoffs were happening so that they could really strategize. Um, that was the kind of origin of our work together as the Research Collective. Um, that was in 2014. Um, now, you know, we've been working together for eight years and um, we have, you know, a large interdisciplinary team of researchers and we work together to um, do research and analysis about the water system um, and also about public education um, and land ownership, housing development, um, and really looking at how all those things kind of overlap and affect each other um, in Detroit as it relates to kind of public policy. Um, we do research for lots of different reasons um, in lots of different contexts. Um, we provide you know, public education materials, um, we provide information for community organizing. Um, we provide research for policy work and legal work. 
Um, we also work with national and international allies to really kind of build a larger movement around water affordability. Um, and um, as I as I will talk a lot more about, um, we work with public health officials and public health researchers to really make a public health argument for um, for water affordability. Thank you for sharing that and uh, for sharing a little more about we the people of Detroit. So. The UN actually recognizes water as a human right. Uh, what does this mean to you? Well, really, I mean, water as a human right is kind of like something that we all intuitively understand, I think, right? We need water to survive. Um, it is necessary for, for human life, for human survival. Um, and so really water as a human right is just a kind of basic statement of that necessity um, and that every human being right has a right to safe and affordable access to, to water. Yeah, yeah, well said. So this human right to water, everyone deserves it, but how is this affected uh, by systems of privilege and oppression? Yeah, I think so. I mean, across the world, right, if we're thinking about the kind of United Nations systems, there's so many different ways that privilege and oppression impact access to safe and affordable water. Um, but in our context in Detroit, um, we are really looking at the overlap between structural racism, um, racial segregation, economic segregation, um, and the way that that kind of maps onto both our, our physical infrastructure, so how our physical infrastructure functions um, and actually works sort of geographically, um, and then also how that maps onto the kind of political systems that actually manage and run the water system. Um, and so there's there's all kinds of ways that the kind of, that kind of geography and space um, starts to impact, right? Um, who lives where, who has access to what kind of portion of the infrastructural systems that we build to deliver water to people. Um, and these kinds of ongoing legacies of racist segregation um, and racial inequality in our region um, have profoundly shaped the human right to water in Metro Detroit. So what is the historical context uh, for these inequities, um, particularly in our region? The city of Detroit has one of the largest uh, water supply and wastewater infrastructure systems in the country um, and also in the world. We have a water system that supplies water to about 40% of Michigan's population. Um, it's actually built by the city of Detroit um, it was not built by any kind of like suburban regional um, collaborative group. It was not funded by the suburban communities that surround the city. It was actually built and paid for by the city of Detroit. Um, and this is, this is unusual. Most American cities have water infrastructure that mostly kind of stays within the city limits. Right. Um, and so such an enormous water infrastructure um, that was sort of built and operated by the city of Detroit that's delivering water across you know, places right to the city of Flint, an hour's drive away from Detroit, um, all part of the Detroit regional water infrastructure system. Um, and really the reason why this infrastructure was, was built by the city of Detroit in the first place was because when the city was expanding rapidly right throughout the 20th century, 
the suburbs didn't have the money, the capital to build their own infrastructure. They just couldn't afford it. The only entity around that could afford to supply water to these expanding suburbs was the city of Detroit. Um, and so they went to the city of Detroit and you know, petitioned them right, to expand the regional system. Um, and at the time, there was there was actually a moment um, in this history where the director of the water department, um, Lawrence Wenhart, says, this will kill the city. Um, if we continue to expand this infrastructure and to facilitate that kind of movement, right, of people and capital outside of the city of Detroit um, using this water infrastructure, this will undermine the kind of fundamental stability of our city systems. And he was right. Um, water infrastructure, the expansion of the regional water infrastructure system in Detroit did just as much, if not more, than the freeway system um, to really subsidize and facilitate urban suburban sprawl and white flight out of the city of Detroit. Um, and I think this is a kind of history and a context that people don't really understand. Um, the kind of the kind of original debt that the suburbs owe to the city for their very existence. Um, and really what has happened in that, during that history in the past, you know, um, now it's sort of over hundred years, 140 years of the existence of the Detroit water system um, is that there's been this kind of constant struggle between the suburbs and the city over the control of the water system itself. This struggle has also mapped onto um, many different forms of injustice in our region um, because of the sort of heavily racialized nature in which suburban sprawl happened, um, because of the way that both private entities, um, you know, people working in real estate development and also public entities like the federal government, state and local governments actually set things up to create segregation. Um, so we have this situation, right, where we have this racialized tension between the suburbs and the city over control of the region's water. Um, and one of the narratives that kind of emerges is um, this, this myth um, that is really propagated by suburban leaders that the city of Detroit is price gouging the suburbs for water, right? That it's kind of taking advantage of the fact that it owns and operates the water infrastructure. Um, and so the suburbs sort of create this belief um, or suburban leaders create this belief that the city is, is taking advantage, um, that it is really kind of extracting resources um, from the suburban communities when in reality, um, that <laughs> the, the, the real situation is that it's kind of flipped, right? That the suburban communities are, are receiving this kind of uh, resource that is essential to their very existence from the city of Detroit. Um, one of the things that we have researched um, with We the People of Detroit Community Research Collective um, is actually looking at the rate structures between the suburban communities in the city to really try and kind of un unpack some of the myths and misconceptions that have been created around how, how water rates work in our region um, and how the water infrastructure functions. Um, and so what we did is we collected like a whole series of studies and information about water rates in suburban communities and in the city of Detroit um, and compared them. Um, and what we learned is that DWSD for almost its entire existence 
um, would sell water to its residents, to city of Detroit residents at a retail rate, right? So what you normally see on your water bill. Um, but it would it would sell water to the suburban water authorities and, and really uh, the suburbs would basically band together and create these purchasing authorities so that they had a better, better bargaining power with the city so they could negotiate lower rates. The city of Detroit sells water at a wholesale rate to that water authority. And then the water authority is reselling the water at retail rates to its own residents. And so these, these water authorities are responsible for maintaining their own local infrastructure, right? So the, the city of Detroit has these big regional water mains that get sent, that send the water to the suburban communities. And then the suburban communities have their own sort of smaller local system that distributes water to individual um, households. And, and so what we learned when we studied the water rates and really started to understand this kind of wholesale versus retail relationship between the city and the suburbs um, is that many suburbs were marking up their water rates to enormous numbers. Um, in some cases, we found that some suburbs were marking up their water a thousand percent so that they would purchase water from the city of Detroit and then resell it to their to their residents and their, and their local suburban community. Um, and so we really discovered that this idea that the city of Detroit is price gouging the suburbs is false and is being used to sort of divide um, people in the suburbs from people in the city um, and create this kind of misunderstanding about um, where the power really lies um, in the management of our regional water system. Okay, so this was the, the situation, this kind of wholesale retail relationship for almost the entire existence of the Detroit water system. But in 2014, the Great Lakes Water Authority was created, which totally changed the way that our regional infrastructure functions. Um, so the Great Lakes Water Authority is a regional entity, which it has leased the regional water system from the city of Detroit. Um, so they pay an amount every year to sort of rent that system. And now the Great Lakes Water Authority is um, responsible for the treatment and distribution of the system. Um, so if you look at the kind of scope of this long power struggle over control of the region's water, um, in 2014, the suburbs took over control. Um, there is now a majority suburban board um, that runs the Great Lakes Water Authority, whereas in the past, the Detroit Water and Sewage Department, the Board of Water Commissioners, right, is a majority Detroit board. Um, and so this, this kind of center of power right, shifted from the Detroit Water and Sewage Department to the Great Lakes Water Authority. Um, so how did this happen? <laughs> how, what happened to create this kind of shift, right, from the city of Detroit owning and operating the regional water to this suburban majority entity called the Great Lakes Water Authority um, owning and operating the regional water. Um, this happened during the Detroit bankruptcy. So um, in March, 2013, the city of Detroit was placed under emergency management um, by the governor of the state of Michigan at the time, Rick Snyder, um, who appointed a man named Kevin Orr to become the emergency manager of the city of Detroit. Um, and the emergency manager law in Detroit is highly controversial. Um, it is a law that allows for the state of Michigan to appoint 
emergency managers over city governments that are having some kind of financial issue. Um, and if the financial problems in that city government meet a certain threshold, um, the, the, the state can sort of impose this manager that can come into the city and has complete control over the city's government. Um, and these are not democratically elected officials, right? These are not democratically elected officials. They are appointed by the state governor. And so we have this kind of undemocratic takeover of the city of Detroit's government, which happened in 2013. Um, so in March, uh, Kevin Orr is appointed. Um, by July, he declares bankruptcy on behalf of the city of Detroit. And again, this is not a decision that's made by Detroit City Council, by the Detroit mayor. It is made by this undemocratically appointed emergency manager. And it unleashes chaos in the city um, in many different ways. One of the things that we see happening immediately with the water system after the declaration of bankruptcy is suddenly we have this mass spike in water shutoffs. And the city of Detroit has shut off water for um, decades. There is an organization called the People's Water Board, which has really worked for decades to get the city of Detroit to implement a water affordability plan. Um, and so there, there have been shutoffs for a very long time in the city, um, but typically we never see more than say a thousand, maybe 2000 a month at kind of like the peak shutoff times. And right, that is already too much. Nobody should have their water shut off because they can't say, afford that's, to that's pay pretty for high. water. Um, but after, after the city declares bankruptcy, suddenly we are seeing those numbers triple, quadruple, 3000 a month. 4,000 a month, these huge numbers. Um, the city has so many water shutoffs to conduct that it actually hires a private demolition contractor called Homrick Wrecking Company to go around the city and shut off water. Um, one of the most one of one of the most important reasons for that the city used to justify this mass water shutoff campaign during the bankruptcy um, is that they they created this kind of narrative that. You know, people in Detroit just don't just don't want to pay their bills. Um, and, you know, they're buying cable, they're paying their cell phone bill, but they won't pay their water bill. Um, and so we have to really discipline these people. Right. And force them to pay um, and teach them that they have to. Right. Or we'll punish them by shutting their water off. So this is the kind of narrative that this that Kevin Orr, that the city of Detroit creates um, the director of the Detroit Water and Sewage Department, Gary Brown. All of these people are participating in creating this kind of understanding of water shutoffs where people who actually are unable to afford these massive water bills in, in the city of Detroit um, get get blamed right the, the narrative is is that it is that it becomes their fault right they've chosen to put themselves in this situation um, when what we know on the ground is that is just not true um, water rates have risen dramatically in the past decades in Detroit um, we pay some of the highest water bills in the country, even though we sit on the Great Lakes, we, we are directly connected to 20% of the world's fresh water. So it sounds like a lot of misunderstanding and just uh, not recognizing the history of water in Detroit and, and the how privilege and oppression played into to, uh, the way that people had or did not have access to water. Uh, was a big deal um, in the water crisis. Um, and 
I, I think this is also relevant to Flint as well. Um, so which kind of leads to our, our next question of why is it important for the public to be informed about their water and their water rights? So the, the way that I am thinking about this on a kind of large scale, right, is that these kinds of systems of structural oppression, structural violence work, they have power because context is erased and removed, right, from the situation. Um, we, we don't have these kinds of historical understandings of inequality and racism to inform, you know, the kind of present day, or we don't understand how our infrastructure functions. We don't understand the kind of regional power relationships at play. Um, and so we are, we are vulnerable, right, to being misinformed. We hear things on the radio, we hear people talking about it, we take them at their word, and we don't have this kind of context to help us think critically right, about what is actually going on with our water systems. Um, and if we don't understand them, if we're not informed, we can't act, right? We can't have an impact on these things that are happening that are so important for the, our, our, our human survival, right? As a region, um, as, as, a, <laughs> as a species, um, we, we, we have to be informed. We have to understand how these systems function so that we can make them better and make them actually work for us so that we can survive. And I, I think this is, this is, you know, one of the things that, that I always try and talk about when I'm talking about the Detroit water crisis is its connection to the Flint water crisis. Um, and many people don't understand that these stories are actually connected to one another. They're part of the same story. And it goes back to emergency management, um, which we were just talking about a minute ago. So when, when the city of Detroit was placed under emergency management and when mass water shutoffs started in Detroit, the city of Flint was also under emergency management. Um, and actually the city of Flint had been under emergency management for over a year when, this, when the emergency manager was appointed in Detroit. So we have this situation where the two largest black majority cities in the state of Michigan are being managed by state appointed emergency managers that have total control over the city government and all of its contracts. And remember that Flint is part of the Detroit water system, the regional system right, goes all the way to Flint and also to many of the suburbs surrounding Flint. And we have this narrative that the city of Detroit is price gouging, right? It's kind of suburban customers. So, so this, this myth is really weaponized by the emergency managers of the city of Flint and the city of Detroit um, to really shift some of these uh, power relationships that are um, at play in our suburban water system. Um, so here's the timeline. July 2013, Kevin Orr declares bankruptcy on, the, on behalf of the city of Detroit. Um, immediately, we see mass water shutoffs spiking, um, thousands more water shutoffs than we've ever had before. Um, a year later, in April 2014, um, the city of Detroit realizes it just doesn't have the capacity to conduct all of these water shutoffs by itself. So it hires a private water contractor or a private demolition contractor, Homework Inc., right, to shut off water. Um, and this is to anybody who's 45 days late or $150 overdue on their water bills. So the threshold is actually quite low to have your water shut off. Um, that same month, 
the city of, of Flint is taken off of the DWC system um, and it begins drawing water from the Flint River. And what happens um, is Flint is the city of Detroit, the, the DWSD um, Detroit Water and Sewer Department, Flint is DWSD's largest customer um, because it's the biggest city on the system, right? It is way bigger than any other city on the Detroit system. Um, and so this contributes to a further destabilization of the water department's finances while the city is in bankruptcy. Um, and creates kind of financial mayhem within the water department. Um, and so we have to understand this as a kind of connected story um, because that instability, that financial instability was then leveraged to justify the creation of the Great Lakes Water Authority, this regional suburban majority entity that now controls the regional system. Um, and so I think that's, that's, that's such critical context, right? Because all of these reckless decisions that were made by emergency managers um, to you know, put the, the water infrastructure for the city of Flint on the Flint River and, and therefore to poison the people of the city of Flint with lead and other heavy metals in their infrastructure, um, the decision not to treat that water um, properly in the way that all municipal water officials know is necessary, um, that decision is, inextricably connected to this effort to take over control of the regional water system from the city of Detroit. Um, and, you know, this is just one, one example, I think, um, of a situation in which really the, the public did not understand what was going on behind the scenes, what was justifying these decisions, and what were the kind of reasons why this was actually happening. Yeah, so I'm, I'm fairly familiar with the Flint water crisis, um, having uh, lived in and around Flint most of my life, but I, I didn't know about the connection with the, with the Detroit water crisis as well. That's very interesting. So thank you for sharing an overview of uh, this historical context of the racial inequities that we see in water access in Michigan today. Um, this history is so important to understand. We'll end our episode here for today and uh, pick up in our next episode to talk more about how these legacies of injustice affect public health and uh, what role individuals in public health play in combating these health inequities that are tied to water access and water affordability. Funding for this podcast is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we encourage you to check out some of the resources listed in the podcast notes uh, and to stay tuned for part two. Until then, Stay safe and stay curious, everyone.